Two weeks ago, we began a new series titled All In, All In. Now, I've shared a concept before. At a training event many, many years ago, a guy was going through the book of Nehemiah. And there's a principle called the Nehemiah principle that comes out of the early parts of that book. And it's basically this, that people tend to forget why they do what they do in about 28 days. The picture out of Nehemiah is that it took them about that long before they stopped and forgot why they were building the wall, why they were repairing the gates of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah had to call them back to the purpose of why. And in many ways, that's what the series about here, All In, is about, of why do we exist here? Why do you walk through the doors here this morning and gather together? Why get up Sunday morning and attend church with a bunch of crabby people? (laughs) Smile if you're crabby. Okay, we've got a few of you there. Why do you bring your family to this location? The truth is, it'd be a lot more fun if you went bowling this morning. Can I have an amen on that one? (laughs) No one dared to do that. Um, it'd be more entertaining to go to a movie. You know, listening to a sermon, you could stay home and watch a reruns of Happy Days. That'd be kind of fun, wouldn't it? And for the most part, you come here to church and you stand and you sit. You know, you really don't get a whole lot of exercise coming through these doors. If you wanted exercise, you could have gone to the YMCA this morning. See, the question of why church, why come, why a gathered group of people is so important, but here's where there are biblical answers to that why. And I want to give you one because if you are one who claims to have a faith, if you claim to be a child of God, There is a number of purposes as to why gather this morning. And let me give you maybe the pinnacle purpose that we would gather as a church. You can follow along in the outline as well, and I said it this way. The purpose of church for a follower of Jesus, to gather together, so that together, that's very important, together, we love God and love people. Now, as I started this series two weeks ago, I I said this, if you call yourself a disciple of Christ, there is a directive that was given to us, given to the disciples, to the crowds, passed on through the scriptures, and now applies to us today. And that directive is the great commandment. I want to put that on the screen and, and understand again the context of this is that they're trying to trick Jesus into giving the wrong answer. And uh, look at how he answers this. By the way, he's quoting here what's called the the Jewish Shema. It it comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, okay? And, And look how he responds. Jesus answered, The most important is this. Hear, O Israel... We could apply, hear, O Grand Rapids Evangelical Free Church. The Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor and the person in the chair in front of you and in back of you and next to you as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Now, that 
command, that directive, was also recorded in, in the book of Matthew. And it actually records just a little bit more. There's a phrase that says this, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. What he was saying to that crowd is that the summary of the whole Old Testament is summarized in those two commandments. And Jesus is bringing it in now in even to the New Testament church. But to review this uh, from going back two weeks ago, I pointed out an important aspect of it. We oftentimes apply this great commandment individually to ourselves. But Deuteronomy 6 here is written to the nation of Israel. It's a called-out group of people. And they would have understood it in the collective sense, not just as an individual. So recognize it's to be applied to the group, all of us, at that point. And, and I think the challenge is, as a church, we've got to stop doing this Jesus and me thing. It's Jesus and us. It's Jesus and us. So together, together, we are to pursue a, a love relationship with the creator of this universe. It's an invitation to t- together. To love him with our hearts, our soul, our minds, and our souls, our wills. And we're to love people, and that is to be an extension, again, of that great commandment. Now, recognize you can't break those two apart. And I said this two weeks ago. If we try to say we love God and we don't care about people, uh, John points out that we are a liar. And the truth is not in us. But deep down, maybe you don't care about this directive of loving God. If deep down, if there's no desire to love him, then this gathering of people will make very little difference in your lives. Now, uh, Steve preached on last week, all in when it comes to the scriptures. Recognize the connection here, is that if it wasn't for this book we call the Bible, is that we wouldn't know the heart of God. We wouldn't know what he's like. How are you to even love? What loving your neighbor actually means. But recognize another piece to this. Because of the flesh, because of who we are, we're drawn to not the great commandment, but actually drawn to self-consumption. We want church to be about us. We become consumers. And if there's a phrase, I I would say it this way. We want comfort. We want safety when it comes to even a church or our lives especially. I came across a quote here this week from C.S. Lewis. And we'll look at what he said. I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you really feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. I think he's spot on. He's spot on. But the fact is that many people who claim to walk with Jesus have adopted a mindset of basically a consumer. What's in it for me? Now, I was studying a couple weeks ago, and I came across a list. And, and that list had some indicators of what a comfortable Christianity actually means. And um, I'm not going to put up the whole list, but I've actually put a number of them in your notes here this morning. 
And I want to give some of those to you because why? They act as a mirror. We look in the mirror spiritually, and I think these apply to us maybe in an uncomfortable way. But here's what the list. Number one, you might be too comfortable in your faith if there's no friction between your faith and partisan politics. The author pointed out that if you align with a political party and everything lines up, he goes, that's way too convenient. Your faith is way too comfortable. Matter of fact, he went on to say this, you probably won't have a biblical witness because of that. We fail to look through the lens of Scripture when it comes to that issue. A second one here, you might be too comfortable if your friends and your coworkers are surprised to learn you're a church-going Christian. Students, this applies to you as well. Would fellow students and teachers be surprised that you attend church? But for all of us, recognize it might be our lifestyle. I think it goes beyond that. I think maybe it's our inability to love well, love our neighbor well. Or oftentimes I think maybe it's this. We have no verbal witness. They never, our friends and our, and our colleagues don't hear a verbal witness of the gospel that comes from our lips. See, a comfortable Christian blends in with the culture around them. Let me give you another one. You might be too comfortable if no one at your church ever annoys you. I like that. If you go to church with people who are always easy to talk to, always fun to be around, always aligned with your opinions, your tastes, your beliefs, one's Christianity is too easy. You know, the gospel and the work of Christ and the Holy Spirit points us to a gathering of people that will be diverse. It was always meant to be that. When you look at the early church, there were different kinds of people and different groups and ethnic groups and all of those things that made up the church. Let me keep going here. Number four, you might be too comfortable if you never feel challenged, only affirmed. You know, we want affirmation. But if the Christian faith never confronts your idols, never challenges your sinful habits, if it only affirms us as to who we are, it's a sign of a way too comfortable faith. The bottom line, I think, is this. Comfort pushes us away from looking in a mirror and saying, who am I? And what is happening in my heart? See, do people look at our hearts and, and conclude this, that we're teachable? Now, you've got to catch this because there's a difference between you might be a learner, you might be a student of the scriptures, and not be teachable. Two very different concepts in that. Let me go after another one, number five, that he said. You've never had to have a truth in love conversation with a fellow Christian. Here's how it goes. It's easy and more comfortable to just live and let live. Someone had, There's an offense, sin. We never call that out. We never call it out. So avoid it. We sling around phrases like this. 
can't judge, you know, which really isn't biblical, okay? And we sling around the word grace, somehow believing that grace demands us to overlook stupid and sinful behavior. And if that's true for us, man, our faith is way too comfortable. It's too comfortable. We just shrug when the church family are making unhealthy spiritual decisions. And you go, folks, that's not grace and it's not loving. Love is not, never opposed to truth. And if our faith never has the capacity to speak hard things into other people's lives, then our faith is too comfortable. Here's the last one for today. He had about 10 of them, but this will be the last one here this morning. No one in your circle of relationships can comment on spiritual transformation in your life. See, people refer to Christians as, you know, oh, they're really a solid Christian. But listen, solid Christians can be plateaued spiritually stagnant spiritually, even sliding back. See, we have to admit, we can get stuck. And yet people can label us, oh, he's a solid Christian. See, but to believe in the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to believe in the work of the Holy Spirit must bring with it change, spiritual change. The life our Christian life, our walk with Christ is supposed to be marked by change. And if we're a Christian who's grown so little, so little that no one around us can say, there's improvement, there's spiritual growth. If no one can say that, that's an issue. First of all, it's a relationship issue. It's lacking. You know, if, if you're a leader in some way, if people can't see and sense that you're becoming a better leader, you're probably a too comfortable leader. That applies as well. But folks, comfortable Christianity is costly to our lives. And to become a group of disciples that fulfills the great commandment together, the great commission, it's costly. And recognize that uncomfortable Christianity has, a li- has little passion for the mission of God, to go make disciples. Little capacity for spiritual change. And it tries to hide. It tries to hide. We want it safe. We want encouraging things as we define them. Now, recognize my goal is not to necessarily make you uncomfortable, but it's to dig in an area here that I believe is so critical to the life of the church and if it doesn't take place, we will never be moving toward fulfilling that great commandment of loving God and loving our neighbor as ourselves. Here's what I want us to ponder this morning. And it's in the form of a question. For your notes, I said it this way, the most important question. Are you all in when it comes to spiritual transformation? And realize it takes discomfort to move toward a spiritual life and spiritual transformation. Now, I want to put a picture up on the screen to try to illustrate this a bit. And this first picture is the picture of an old church there. Just the drawing of a church. It's kind of an old-fashioned church here. We don't have a steeple on our building here. 
uh, but realize that there were some reasons as to why churches used to be built with steeples on them. Now, modern churches, it doesn't happen all that often anymore. But the theory is, there's a number of theories as to why steeples were put on churches. Let me just give you a couple of them. First of all, that steeple oftentimes had a bell. It was for the local community that when those bells were ringing, guess what? Gathered together to worship God. It was a call to a place to gather together to worship God. And as well, the second piece is, you notice the steeple goes up. It's, it's pointed upward. So they assume at that point that, that the theory is that it was called to direct our eyes upward and toward God. Another one is, is this. I discovered that people believe that the tallest buildings in a community were what people valued the most. And if you went to small towns or communities where the steeple was very prominent, oftentimes the steeple would be the highest point in the town. We value God above all else. Now, here's where I need to push the illustration just a little bit farther. I want to put up another picture. And in this picture, I got some words there. So that steeple represents the great commandment. But you notice something that that structure has four walls and a roof. Because here's the reality. If you don't have that structure, you won't have a steeple. If you don't have four walls and a roof, a steeple is not a steeple. It's just a cone looking up. That's it. Folks, those walls, the structure of those walls represents the word transformation. And we are called to be spiritually transformed. It leads us to focus on God and not ourselves. It it needs to lead us to serve rather than being served. It pulls us to live lives marked by sacrifice. It leads us to do hard things, to even embrace hard truth. To do life with hard people. For the sake of the one that we love the most, God. Now, again, as we dig here, I could have used some different phrases. I could have said spiritual maturity. I could have said growing in your faith. But I chose the word transformation because it is a broader term. And again, we're going to dig at it next week and go a lot deeper here next week. But realize that transformation is the call. It encompasses a whole bunch of things in our lives. And it is not simple. And it actually makes us uncomfortable. Matter of fact, when we dig into the idea of transformation, it holds a mirror up to our lives and it reveals who we are. Because you got to catch the opposite. If there's little transformation, the result is little love for God. Little love for our neighbors. Understand the correlation there. If we're not transformed, there's things that will not happen. 
But let me dig into this issue here. And, and again, I, I want to be accurate, but if you've got your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We're just going to take a few minutes here this morning, and there's so much there I'm going to leave out, understand. And again, I, I encourage you to use your pads or your Bibles to highlight or underline. But to the context here, Paul's a little bit on the defensive, and he wants to, there's people that want to keep going back to the same rules, the same system of religion that they had. If you maybe heard the phrase, the old covenant, living by a set of rules, and Paul, he's advocating no, okay? He's fighting against that, and he's saying that they're blind. There's a veil over people's eyes when they get stuck there. So he's advocating, really, a new pathway toward God, a new promise, and that's where we we read, and we'll jump in here. Look at verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who had put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The question, what does transformation mean? When I use that word for us, if we claim to be a disciple of Christ. Doesn't mean this. You got to clean up your act. Or change your behaviors to become, quote, more Christ-like. Or maybe this. Live by a new set of rules and regulations. You know what, let's, let's make up a brand new list of thou shalt nots. Now here's the deal. When you dig into a text like this, you find that transformation is very different from all of those things. Now in the original language, you may not know, but it's written in Greek. That was the language of the day when Jesus was at Jerusalem and, and in Israel. But this word transformation is an interesting word because it is the word metamorphosis. Think back to the science classes you've had and you've heard that word. I want to put the Webster's uh, definition on the screen here for you. Metamorphosis, a profound change in form from one stage to the next in the life history of an organism. Now, there is an example that I want to use this morning that is probably no better picture that we can use of an illustration. And I want to put that first picture on the screen, and it's this picture of a butterfly. A butterfly. Recognizing that there are four stages of butterflies. There's the egg and then there's the larva, and then there's the pupa, and then there's the adult butterfly. 
It starts with the eggs, and here's some eggs on, the, on, a, on a leaf here. The eggs are on that plant that female butterfly lays them, and they hatch, and out comes a caterpillar. Here's a good-looking caterpillar. It enters the feeding stage. Basically, it's this. They feed what they're landing on. What they, they're born onto a leaf. They start eating that leaf. But there's nourishment that grows them up into be an adult-sized caterpillar. But they don't stay there. They move to a third stage, what's called the pupa. It really, in many ways, is the coolest stage of, of transformation here. So they, it's done growing. And the, the picture of... Picture you as you put on a sleeping bag and you're standing up and you're slowly pulling it up and you're zippering it and you cover it all up your whole head. That's what's going on. And you'll know that word chrysalis, the the, the portion of it. But here's the deal. There is a remarkable change that's taking place in that organism. The tissue the limbs, the organs of that caterpillar are being changed drastically. And all of a sudden, this metamorphosis takes place, and all of a sudden, poof, a butterfly begins to emerge. Let's go with that. There's a picture of that butterfly coming out of that sleeping bag. But you got to catch this. That caterpillar to become a butterfly, it doesn't put on a butterfly costume. It's changed completely. And it doesn't learn to become a butterfly. Something has happened within the process where all of a sudden they're not a that little creature on a leaf, but they're flying. They're flying. And there's a, a sense of beauty with it as we watch them. See, there's really not a better picture of what happens when transformation takes place in the hearts and the lives of for us as a follower of Christ. You know, I, I remember the first time of really, this, folks, this is a miracle. And I remember the first time I, I looked at this closely as a speaker, Deanna and I were doing or helping with a college retreat up on Mount Hood in Oregon. And the speaker was going through this text and he was just giving this picture of this radical transformation, the metamorphosis, not of a butterfly, but of people and what God was doing. And folks, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. Matter of fact, my son, Andy, was we we'd always take our kids to the retreats and he was fifth or sixth grade and he can still remember back to that event and being impacted by that idea that God is changing people radically. But let me give you the key point for this morning that we must remember in this process. The key is this. Transformation does not come by our own effort, but by the Spirit of God. 
Transformation is not about learning to act a certain way. And it's what way too many people in the church believe. If I learn the right behavior, if I learn the right facts, the right truths, and if I overcome a faulty will, and poof, therefore I'm transformed. And I go, no, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. And I think too often that's what, frankly, churches and Sunday school teachers sometimes communicate. If I just put on a butterfly costume, then I'm a butterfly. And at the core, no, that's just not true. If I just learn to act like a butterfly, and you go, no, that's not biblical at all. See, I think the challenge is, matter of fact, I think of homes, and I think many children here for mom and dad just put on a butterfly costume. Just put on a butterfly costume. And then they go away to college and they rip that costume off almost immediately. Because it's just too much work to keep acting like a butterfly when they're not. Churches are filled with people who've been trying to put on a butterfly costume thinking that they're changed. And it's hurting the church. It's hurting marriages. It's hurting families. But folks, spiritual transformation, metamorphosis is the conduit that leads us to love and worship God. It has to happen in our lives. And biblical knowledge alone doesn't change you. Learning how to act Christ-like doesn't change you. Putting on some WWJD, what would Jesus do bracelets, it doesn't change you. It doesn't change our kids. Let me put up a key verse in verse 17 here. Now the Lord is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Now, we're going to unpack this more next week and this whole issue. But freedom what? Freedom to love. Freedom to forgive. Freedom to serve. Freedom to be a part of God's mission. Freedom to love your neighbor who you can't stand. That's what metamorphosis does. But I, I got to remind you, it's not a one-time event. In verse 18, I don't have it on the screen, we are being transformed. It is a process. As a matter of fact, the rate varies from person to person. You know, you think of butterflies, everyone is unique. Not all the same. It's true for us as followers of Christ. But here's where I, I need to end today, and I need to give you a snapshot maybe of a picture of what can really happen when that metamorphosis, when transformation takes place. Uh, last weekend, um, Deanna and I were down in Austin, Texas at my son's place, and I'm on his board of directors for his ministry. And, and so we were doing about a day and a half of discussions and meetings there. But the rest of the weekend, we got to spend time with our kids 
and our grandchildren. And there was some insight that I had as I was preparing for this sermon. There was this aha moment for me as I was watching their family. And it, and it has to do with my granddaughter named Macy. Macy is in eighth grade, and she is struggling right now. She's really struggling. Deanna and I are praying fervently for her. And it's a combination of physical. There's emotional with it. I believe there's spiritual with it. Um, she has a stress fracture in her foot that is not healing. And understand, she's a gifted cross-country runner. And last year, she was the starter on, on the school basketball team. So this fall, she couldn't run. She couldn't play basketball this winter. Missing those things, and along with other things, she is struggling emotionally. And there is discouragement and anxiety and anxiety attacks, and it's led to her in school. She has struggled with school profoundly. Now, again, we've been praying, but, but as I watched, let me tell you something. God has been showing up. And matter of fact, I think this, God is using it in Macy's life because it's not comfortable for her now. Understand that. And I believe she has a faith, but it's not easy. But watching, God has put some pieces in place to show his love for her and to minister to her in a way that is really quite profound as, I've, as I watched it. See, God has brought a friend into her life. And it's an illustration of this friend's life being transformed. Another eighth grader named Emily. She was over there while we were there. And Jen, Macy's mom, told us this, told us some things. And I, folks, I, I just stood back and I go, man, is God good. And I was amazed because it's evident that God was working and transforming this Emily, this eighth grade girl. She's an eighth grader and she has been coming alongside of Macy and caring for her, encouraging her, loving her, looking to present her complete, Macy complete in Christ. And this is the statement that Jen made. Emily prays with her, and she prays over her. Here is an eighth grader that's been transformed, and she is doing things that many adults don't do. Metamorphosis has taken place. Here's an eighth grader who's a, who's a beautiful butterfly and ministering. And ministering. See, Jen and my son Andy and the kids and Macy, they are a witness of God's work and transformation in another eighth grade girl's life. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up because we want to close with a song. But let me ask some questions. What would it look like if 
we as a church were being transformed by the Spirit, where people walk into this place, this building, and they walk away going, man, these, these people love God. Where they walk in and they go, I'm loved. You know what would happen if people came away and said, we're, we're, we're doing the great commandment? We'd be adding another 100 chairs. Is what we would be doing? Because hurting people would find relationships that they need here. People who are struggling with discouragement and fear would find God and God would use those other people into their lives and they would become transformed. But see, here's the question I think for each of us this, this morning. Are we all in on spiritual transformation? Are we all in? And yeah, next week we're going to dig at it more and more. But recognize we don't, we don't just sit and go, mm, and it happens. There's a part that we play in this process. We have to cooperate. But listen, it is the foundation of a healthy church. When we are changed, when metamorphosis takes place spiritually in a group of people, a church changes profoundly. And that's what we're praying for. That's what we're praying for. See, a church isn't about learning to put on a butterfly suit and act like we're butterflies. Not at all. Let me just read the two verses to close. Come back to that. Verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from the one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Folks, he wants to transform us and he wants to set us free. Changes from the inside out. And we become people who love the Lord our God with all our heart and our soul, our mind and our wills. Let's respond. Let's just stand and let's sing. And give your love to the Savior as we sing.